Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, the creator of The Left Pocket Project, and this is The Left Pocket Project podcast. We're actually quote-unquote live today, if you can call a podcast live, this is about as live as we're going to get. Um, but we are doing a discussion about the uh, 2020 Democratic election debates. Uh, they were held on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, and so we wanted to have a little bit of downtime to digest and think about what we saw and heard, um, and that way come back together and have a discussion about it. Um, so today, of course, I have, as always, with me, my co-host, Richard. Hello, hello. And we also have joining us to discuss this, Anoa Changa. Anoa, can you give the audience an introduction? I know some of you all may already know Anoa from having heard her in our previous, one of our previous episodes, and also just seeing her actively engaging online. But I'd love to hear from Anoa again what you're up to nowadays. How's it going? And what's up? What's thank up with you? you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One, I am so excited and honored to be here because I haven't been here since Richard has been your co-host. So totally dope to, to get to chop it up with both of you. Um, uh, yeah, my name is Anoa Changa. I host the podcast, The Way with Anoa. Um, and I'm an attorney, a recovering attorney. I guess I'm still <laughs> technically attorney. Uh, based in Atlanta. I have two awesome kids. You know, I dipple and dabble in some online thuggery. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> I do digital organizing, communication strategy, and support with um, various nonprofit organizations and progressive candidates. Uh, last year, I worked for a progressive PAC and have been on my own for the past six and a half months now. Um, and, yeah, so just trying to get back into writing and doing the podcast and figuring out how to help, you know, contribute to this course. I mean, one of my major focuses right now has to do with debunking notions of electability and mm. really struggling through the tension of what does it look like to have that conversation? Like if people are going to insist on like supporting particular individuals or engaging in the political system in a particular way, at least can we have honest conversations, discourse around what does it take for somebody to win? And it's not whatever the pundits are saying in terms of how you need to flip the map between the 3,000 Trump voters that went from Obama to Trump or, or whatever. The, you know, that that's kind of where I've been most interested because I think if we can get to, in terms of just traditional electoral politics, if folks can get really breakthrough in thinking about the way in which uh, whether or not someone's acceptable based on what they think other people are thinking, and just spend the time focusing on the issues and doing the work, we would see very different results as we started to see some um, really coming out of the 2017 special election and, you know, the various places that had elections in 2017, like Virginia, and, you know, last cycle with the midterms. I think that that point that you hit about electability is really important because one of the things whenever I hear electability, I'm always like, well, isn't the candidate that's most electable the one that you actually put energy behind and mobilize and like get people to vote for and like push on issues? <laughs> I mean, it seems like electability right. is like something that you create and not something that just like inherently comes with a candidate. And they seem to be thinking about it in the wrong way. I mean, because if, if we're going to make a positive argument for electability, it's literally whatever candidate you mobilize behind and push and like get to be right on the issues, you know, or get right on the issues. But apparently 
apparently we haven't moved very far in the discourse on that. So here's, here's hoping that contributions by people like you, and I know Malika Jabali has written about this as well, um, will kind of get people thinking in different ways about electability, but I'll tell on that front. Um, so the debates. Uh, I Ooh. So I even though I told y'all, I was like, take notes, watch it twice. I could not watch it twice. I tried and I just couldn't bring myself to watch them twice because I felt some kind of way about both nights. Um, but I was curious, just like first impressions, uh, what you all thought about the debates overall. Um, and I'm actually going to start with Richard. Give me your thoughts, like first impressions. What were your kind of takeaways from the debates? Um, yeah, I'm just curious what you thought coming away from them. Uh, well, uh, immediately regretted slash or like encouraging slash agreeing to w watch them and talk about them <laughs> just as how painful <laughs> they were to watch. I think that was a, a kind of a unanimous kind of feeling. Uh, as far as the content, it was interesting. They kind of went out of their way to try to avoid the, you know, kitty table versus, you know, big kids mm -hmm. table debate kind of situation. Felt like they ended up there anyway with Warren really being the only person on night one that had a chance, and then uh, most of the other candidates on night two. And then uh, I guess uh, the optics were interesting, uh, uh, particularly on night two with uh, Biden, Bernie, and Kamala in center stage. Like that was uh, an interesting dynamic just to see. And uh, I guess one of the other first impressions I guess I had is that there were less fireworks than i was expecting but i guess a, a couple ones that were worth talking about that i imagine we'll get to well and anoa yes so um it was really interesting for me right watching the debate and and just even like when you watch like different hearings or the different town halls i think the town halls are a little bit better to critique mm -hmm. the individual candidates because mm -hmm. i think in terms of the town halls, they actually had more time to engage on particular questions. Now, whether or not the questions were good in the town halls, you know, by and large, it's a mixed bag, right? But in the debate, you know, they have such a short time. It's so chaotic. You know, you had people yelling all over each other. But one of the things that I think really stood out um, was uh, it, it really, I do, I do appreciate Richard's analysis, and it really did, like, kind of separate a couple of people and it made clear that some other people, like, should not have been on the stage. And then there were some people who, are, who I thought, why are you here? They made, they, I won't say they made great use, but they, they, they had a, at least one or two decent contributions to the conversation. You know, mm -hmm. from last night, Eric Swallow, you know, with the Biden pass the torch quote, that was awesome. I was like, I can actually change a lot of my rhetoric around Biden right now because there's literally a quote out there that I just need to find and have a meme of it that he says leadership needs to get out the way and pass the torch. Like, mm -hmm. you take your own advice. Um, and then from the first night, you know, I know there – the problem is, right, people can perform well in the moment and have really good moments. And, and as we're critiquing, like, the debates themselves as, like, a thing while still being problematic and having – aspects of their records and their, even their current plans that we need to grapple with, hold them accountable on, and figure out what we're doing with them, right, in terms of whether or not we're organizing explicitly against them or we're organizing someone else as, as an alternative, like what does that look like, right? And I'm not necessarily great at this because Twitter is not necessarily the best medium. However, you know, the first night, Julian Castro, I thought, did a pretty good job, did a really good job compared to, you know, maybe what the expectation has been of him. 
And particularly, I appreciated his checking uh, Beto O'Rourke because there's been so much made of Beto um, and Robert. His, you know, oh, geez, Robert, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Robert O'Rourke. Robert Francis. Robert Francis. Right. Robert Francis. And he looked at one point, he probably looked at one point, he probably called him Robert Francis in his head. But um <laughs> but but I appreciate the exchange they were having. And again, we can get there's so much more deeper into the issue of immigration and I'm I don't pretend to be an expert at all, but I do appreciate, you know, the fact that Julian really did not let, let Robert Francis R F get away, you know, with you know, obfuscating the issue. I mean, even the next day in, like, you know, their post-debate interviews and stuff, uh, RF is talking about, well, no one has done more for family separation than I have. And it's like, dude, Jeff Merkley is just immediately the person. Better work, uh, you, you, O'Rourke, is not the first person that comes to my head, right? It's, right. it's Merkley yeah. or, or countless other people not him, not the person who was just running with a hat on his head that said, make borders great again. No. Yeah. Um, and Elizabeth <laughs> Warren, I mean, she is a candidate that has her issues. I, I, I think, Wendy, you and I have talked about this offline, you know, privately in our own communication. I like her a lot more than I thought I would, mm-hmm. um, but more so because of my own personal background, having been a young mother, having gone through school and law school with, with kids. Um, there is Something like we complain—not we complain—but one of the critiques of Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, in the, in the last run was that she wasn't, she didn't humanize herself, right? She didn't make herself relatable, and it's a critique that some, to, to a different extent, has happened with Sanders. But it's, it's, you know, Sanders is just a very different person altogether, right? Different type of candidate, completely from everyone else. I think Warren has done a better job of that. Now, there, of course, there's the various issues that people have raised that exist with her, but I think that she did well, but she was expected to do well. And so I was actually disappointed in her performance in terms of the foreign policy section. Like, she was essentially quiet and just sat there. So there are like, two ways I thought about it. One, it was, like, that's not her thing. She's not going to, like, she doesn't really have anything to add in that moment. Or that's the teacher in her who's, like, look at these little kids, you know, acting up, like, let me just stay here and watch you all make fool yourself. So I was, like, I don't really know how to read this right now. But then last night, I I watched because I was live tweeting for an org I do work for. But like, I really didn't want to. I really didn't want to watch. And yeah. the the I think I think the lowest point of the of the debates are the commentators and their inability to actually ask critical questions and really push back. I mean, there were there was a little of it I think happened last night, but overall, I don't think that the different commentators they have doing this do a good job. Well, like one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was watching it is that every now and then, like I was expecting people to say after the fact, you know, oh, they were unfair to Bernie or they were unfair to Tulsi or they were unfair to whomever is like your favorite candidate, right? There's a lot of that. But what I did notice is that like they were pretty critical on some of the favorite candidates. So like Pete Buttigieg, they asked a very difficult question about what's going on in his hometown right now. Um, especially with his black constituents who are suffering from like severe cases of police brutality um, and really pitiful uh, municipal response. And he was, he played a role in that, you know, a major role actually. Um, And so I was surprised when they asked that question. And I was also surprised actually um, by what I've seen in the aftermath of last night's debate, 
around Biden. Like there was an article that came out on NBC.com about his segregation, like his support of mm -hmm. segregation, basically. So I was like, whoa, okay. They've like, they're reading the tea leaves here and basically have said no to Biden already, which is, which I think is an interesting turn and kind of unexpected. Um, not necessarily for the better though, because I don't want Kamala Harris. I don't want any of these people as president, to be honest, but I'm not a Kamala Harris fan. Um, but it was interesting to see how that, how those tides turned real fast um, overnight. But I do wish that during the debates, we could see, for example, like, a, if you guys, do you guys remember pop-up video from like the 90s, mm -hmm. early 2000s? Yep. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, I'm like mm -hmm. dating myself here. But for the youngins in the audience. I don't know if Richard is humoring us or not, but yes. <laughs> I, I remember. That's right, how I know okay. that the smashing, how I know the smashing pumpkins were almost the great pumpkins. Nice. See? <laughs> But in fact, so it would be nice if they had put these sorts of pop-up video style pop-ups about their record. So for anyone who doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about, uh, VH1, which is a music network in the United States, or used to be music, now they just have like shitty reality shows, but they used to have a show called Pop-Up Video where they would play a video and then they would have these little pop-ups like you see on a on like a comic strip. And uh, the think bubbles or the talk bubbles would have like interesting facts about the band that was playing or about the video or like whatever. And they would, you know, post them as the video was going. So it was kind of an interactive experience. So it would be nice if we could do something like that with these debates, because many people were lying, just like straight up lying to their teeth. Um, and it would have been nice to have like a check pop up to be like, actually fact, like in this year, this person said this or did this, because the problem is like with the format, as you were kind of alluding to Noah, there's so many people that it was impossible for them to really like jump in unless you are real, you have like a really dominant debate style or just, you're like an overbearing person, which I would say like Bill de Blasio just kind of stepped on every on the first night. Um, but if you keep interjecting, that's one thing, but then you become annoying. Like you, I don't think people look favorably upon that. Um, so I think the format in and of itself kind of prohibited real interrogation of these people's records, which I think in real time would have been very helpful to an audience, especially an audience that's coming into this without nearly as much of the background info. Because like if you just saw last night Kamala Harris's performance, and if you didn't know anything about her background, she would have come across as the quote unquote winner from last night's debate. And I mean, she basically, mm -hmm. she buried she buried Biden, which is like, yay for that. But at the mm -hmm. same time, her own record is atrocious, especially in black communities. And so it's kind of like, yep. how do you square that? Like, how do we reconcile this issue um, without having that information? And so I think it would have been nice if we had some sort of way to check, like fact check in real time, um, or just know the backgrounds of some of the candidates. I don't know. Um, well, yeah, but the other thing, I'm just sorry. to transition, because I don't want to talk too much about the technicalities of the debate, but um, thinking more about issues, what were, I guess, what were some of the issues that stood out to y'all as either lacking in depth or that you were excited that were um, broached in one or both debates? Um, and anything that you feel like, I don't know, that you wanted to go deeper on or have, have heard more about uh, while you were listening? I'm going to start with Richard, actually, and then I'll switch over to you, I know. Uh, let's see here. I, I, I think uh, both of you raised some great points uh, about uh, all the overview of the debate. And uh, I think one of the things that in particular that I remember that are captured from the post-debate 
coverage was about uh, Biden and essentially the AP had to run a correction it says in a story on June 27th about the Democratic presidential debate, the Associated Press reported erroneously in some versions that former Vice President Joe Biden worked with Republican uh, Republican segregationist senators. In fact, the senators were Democrats. And it's oh like, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of uh, that, that I felt like that that correction summarized Biden's night uh, yeah. in, in ways. And uh, I think uh, Harris bringing up that that part of his record was critical. And though, although I think that you both raised excellent points about uh, how we have to reconcile that with her uh, history as a prosecutor, which ironically Joe Biden brought up, uh, uh, like kind of pithily in that mm-hmm. in his response, saying, "Well, you know, I I became you know I didn't become a prosecutor like you," and so like he alluded to it, but because of the situation and the dynamics at play, I think that. It didn't play as well as it does when, you know, if somebody like uh, one of us says makes that point. Uh, and I, I think that that's, that's kind of an important dynamic at play. And I think that's one of the reasons why both of you also highlighted it. And it stuck out to me. The thing, obviously, uh, anybody that listens to me probably recognize that I don't think I got enough attention would be climate change. Yeah. And I mean, Inslee mm-hmm. tried and uh, he made, made an effort. Uh, uh, I, I guess it's commendable. I don't. Uh, he's a, also a local representative for me, so uh, I we have I have my own qualms with him on that level. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as what on debate night, uh, I do appreciate the effort, even if it it kind of fell on deaf ears and didn't result in any sort of subsequent uh, substantive debate. Uh, the just a quick point, I guess, on the the format, I felt is that like. Uh, We'd almost be better off with more if we get since it's treated like more like a game show. If we actually did it more like a game show, gave them buzzers, asked them questions, <laughs> and and gave them a limited amount of time, and you could avoid mm-hmm. situations where one candidate gets three, four, five times as much as another candidate, whether that whether one candidate deserves it or uses it better than the other one would have anyway. But mm-hmm. that's I'll pass it to you know with that. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You know, you both brought the issue of, like, the thing with Joe Biden. And, and, I mean, that was, like, one of the moments last night, right, when she turns to him. You know, and, again, that's something else I saw two ways, right? On the one hand, I was like, wow, this is really big of her. And they clearly were waiting for how to land that moment, right? Yeah, because they had the picture ready and everything. (laughs) Yes, yes, right, right, right. And so, um like when she turns him and she talks to him, she tries the nice way first because that's that's that prosecutor. That is that prosecutor. Uh-huh. You know, she tries to be nice all whatever, and then you know you got he 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 started to like you know oh not not he wouldn't just apologize or whatever, and then she turned up on him, and I was like okay girl, and so the and Wendy you know you and I have talked about this before when we did the episode about representation, uh-huh. um you know back in like January, um. You know, it is really hard as a black woman to not be for her, for me. Um, and not because, like, I, I'm having a difficulty choosing between her bad record, but I, I want to, like, I want to be excited that there is a black woman on the mm-hmm. national stage who could possibly make it, right? Like, I want to be excited about that. I can't. Because yeah. of, not only because of her record, but because of the doubling down. We talked about this before, because of the defensiveness. I mean, there was an article out a couple of weeks ago, I think it was in Political, maybe, um, and they were talking about, it was a profile, I think, on her sister, Maya Harris, and they were talking about how Maya has, like, a different opinion on how they should be 
uh, addressing her prosecutorial record. You know, she doubled down. She said things like, people don't understand how hard it is to be a prosecutor. That's all that's BS. We literally have an entire, have had an entire movement space that has been dissecting, discussing, and addressing these issues. And as, you know, someone noted last night, if you've been crying and boo-hooing and, like, so distraught over when they see us, but you, you know, yes, stray queen with Kamala, you got to reconcile that with yourself. And so, but then on the, then, you know, I just recently learned, and I, I did not know this because it didn't get much hype, she's like, she has introduced or she has a plan to increase funding for public defenders. But that's actually something that's interesting. So I don't know if that's like her own sly way of trying to inoculate with the bad record. But um, but the other thing that I felt, felt problematic, and both her and Booker did this, and I guess it's probably a political thing because, you know, the political spaces and circles and donors and things like that, they, I, they can't just go at Biden the way we would. Um, but that whole, like, I know you're not a racist. I know you're a good white person. Like, I know you don't mean a thing that whole placating and trying to appeal to their sense of like personal morality and stuff. And instead he doubled down. What I did even though and we've all faced about and criticized her record, what I did find highly problematic was for this man to be unchallenged on the stage. I agree. And I I, I don't mean to gloss over her record not being challenged. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I do, I do find it. I don't mean to gloss over that because that is an important fact. And actually, my friend Tracy Quarter with the Center for Popular Democracy has a piece up on Progressive Army today about the 94 crime bill, about the mess Democrats have made, and with Biden being on the national stage, they need to, they need to fix this. Um, you know, so she wrote a really good piece. You know, just, just being distraught that criminal legal issues, the criminal legal system has not been addressed nearly enough in those first two conversations. I'm not going to add in voting rights as other issues. But what bothered me the most out of that between Biden and, and Kamala is the way in which, because that's the problem, that's, that's where we get caught up. Because as a black woman, particularly as a black woman there who's been in particular spaces, we're already outnumbered a lot, and we tend to work in close proximity to older white men. I know that feeling of being right, having to correct your superior or your elder or whoever, you know, your senior attorney or whatever, or something that they're not just wrong on, but they're being racist and possibly misogynistic sexist about. And then having to deal with that and worry about how do you say it, do you even say it? Like, so it's, it's a very wild series of emotions. But what bothered me the most, though, about that was when he threw his face, when he made the comment about being a public, that he was, well, I was a public defender out of law school and you became a prosecutor. That right there was the height of fragility and entitlement to me on Biden's behalf, considering how many decades that mm-hmm. man spent providing the, the brain power, working with Republicans across the aisle on legislation that involved the war on drugs, that involved the 94 crime bill, that involved multiple policies that contributed to the decimation of black and brown neighborhoods. And so, yes, we do need to talk about Kamala's, uh, Kamala's, Kamala's, I always say her name wrong. Um, Kamala. <laughs> Kamala. I learned. I had to learn because I kept saying Kamala also for the longest time. I mean, Kamala's uh, record, but at the same time, like, somehow we have to do the balance. And I think what Tracy's point is when she's writing and talking about it, this is going to be the 25th anniversary of the, of, the, of the 94 crime bill. September 13th, I believe, is, is the 25th anniversary. We have to have a real reckoning and conversation with the way in which, because there's no way, 
I, I need to understand. I don't actually. I don't need to understand. But for Joe Biden to sit there and act like he has some great moral superiority, and he just did a, a press conference. He ran in Chicago to do a press conference with I don't know where he's at, but Jesse Jackson apparently is in the room. He keeps referring to him. Right. Um, and he did it to defend his civil rights record. So he ran to Chicago to do his civil to defend his civil rights record, and he's you know trying to rehabilitate always after the fact, always after explaining whatever. But on that stage last night, and he's talking about he became a public defender because his two hero, political heroes were Bobby Kennedy and MLK, and both were murdered by the time he graduated from law school. Um, and that made him want to become a public defender because of what was happening in his community. Either that's true and he got caught up in trying to be famous and being a senator, being a career politician, or, you know, that's just the story he's telling us. But either way, what's happening with Joe Biden and what we're watching play out is really what we're we're watching a living white psyche really, like, unfold, you know, in the face of its own racism and, and, and internalized white supremacy and prejudice. And he can't come to terms with it. And quite un- unfortunately, a lot of Democratic voters can't come to terms with it either. But awakening is going to have to happen this, this cycle one way or another. And it's really yeah. sad post-Trump mm-hmm. that this is where we are. I mean, yeah, I think that there's what you just raised, too, about the crime bill is interesting because it just it reminds us so much about just the collective cognitive dissonance this country seems to have about a lot of issues. Um, I'm going to get to one in a minute that definitely stood out to me as like, what the hell uh, in terms of cognitive dissonance. But I think in this case, you know, like you said, if you watch the show on Netflix, even if you watch 13th, uh, which I actually didn't watch 13th or uh, When They See Us because I'm kind of like, I know about these stories already. I understand this background and I don't need to like re-traumatize myself. Um, but people do need to watch it if they aren't familiar with the histories. And I think that there's like, there's even even then, even when you watch them, there's a disconnect between these individual stories and the larger system, right? And like the, the actors who uphold that system and like engage it in a, in a way that helps keep it maintained, right? Um, and there's not enough, there's not enough discussion about that. Like connecting dots is what I always say. Like there's not enough connecting the dots between, between these individual cases and histories and like the larger system and the larger set, the institutional histories that we need to be talking about. Um, and we saw that a lot in 2016, especially on things like foreign policy, which helps me transition to what I, I found to be incredibly lacking on both nights. Um, this discussion of foreign policy was shallow as F. And like there was, I mean, Tulsi Gabbard kind of tried at one point, she, you know, by break, there was a little bit of a tiff between her and um, Tim Ryan about, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan and things like that. But for the most part, I didn't hear anything about foreign policy and I'm going to say this and it's going to sound weird. I didn't really hear anything about immigration. And the reason I say that despite the fact that people kept bringing up immigration is that they weren't connecting dots between how we got like what's happening now and how we got here. Um, And that to me was incredibly frustrating, especially coming from candidates that pretend to be, you know, they, they purport to be progressive or leftist or socialist, whatever they call themselves and yet they still seem to be so lacking in an internationalist understanding of like what the left should look like um, and what a president of like the largest, con- like in terms of ec- economy, you know, like one of the largest, if not the largest economy in the world, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful country in the world and coming to the stage and seeming to know nothing about the rest of the world was like, it's scary to me, you know, I mean, we're already in a position, we're already in a position where uh, Trump obviously knows nothing and 
wants to go to war with everybody every five seconds because they looked at him wrong or something. But then, you know, like we have a Democratic Party and a set of candidates that aren't connecting dots between the like ravenous U.S. foreign policy and what happens in the aftermath. Like, it's just astounding to me. And so to give a clear example of one that for me last night kind of, or the first night and then last night, both, uh, I had two lines from both nights that really stood out to me um, as like troubling. So the first night, um, there was a discussion about um, migrants and people being held at the border and how, you know, they aren't criminals and there's no need to do this. It, someone said, let me see if I can, I'm going to literally see if I can find the quote. Um, I'm looking at the transcript right now, so I might not be able to find it. I don't, I don't see it. But someone mentioned um, on the first night that the people at the border now aren't criminals, their families and whatnot. It's not, it, they said, it's not like they're like the, the terrorists at Guantanamo Bay. And I was like, no. okay, first of all, none of, no one at Guantanamo Bay has ever been prosecuted. No one is, has been afforded habeas corpus. People have, were not charged with anything and are held against their will. They were literally kidnapped. Um, and in many cases from people who've been doing research on, on the people that are housed there, um, they have said that many of them were just like bystanders or people in the area that the U.S. rounded up and then labeled as terrorists in retrospectively. Right. Um, they're being tortured. All the things that, you know, deprived of food, there are people on hunger strikes, all sorts of stuff is going on there. And it's just I mean, this has been going on since the early the first few years of, of the millennium, like 2000s. And we still haven't closed Guantanamo Bay. We still haven't sent these people home or back to some sort of um, state of asylum, like nothing. I mean, they're literally just prisoners of war and there's no recourse. And it's just a it's just like a, a, a void. Like we don't even talk about it anymore. So I was happy that it was brought up. But the way that it was brought up was like terrifying, because what he's saying is like, these are the good immigrants. These are the bad, bad guys. And have the right to a trial who need to have the right of resources who need to be given asylum. Like there's so many things going on. And I, I don't like this weird false dichotomy between the good immigrants and the bad immigrants or whatever. Um, because the, the reality is like, who are the real terrorists in both of these cases? It's America. Let's just be honest. Like America is the one that's enacting foreign policies that then put people in these positions. So the reason that we have so many people at coming, like literally swimming and, and dying in some cases to get to the United States or like to get to other parts of the world in some cases is about the U.S. actively destroying their countries like since inception, but particularly during the 80s, 90s and, and early 2000s, even up to the Obama administration. So if we talk about Honduras, for example. Um, so it was it's it's like mind boggling to me then that last night in the discussion about, you know, a, a discussion about immigration, the only person who brought up foreign policy, like had wreaking havoc on Latin America was freaking Marianne Williamson, who I was like, like, I don't, I don't see her as a serious candidate at all. So like, it was very frustrating to have that because everyone sort of kept talking about the Central American crisis as though it just spontaneously generated. It came out of nowhere and there are the, all these scary gangs and as if it's some sort of inherent quality of, of Latin Americans or specifically Central Americans. I mean, to me, this is the other face of Donald Trump's Mexicans are rapists comment, because what Democrats are saying is, oh my God, there's so many gangs and they're not, they're not attributing the problems in Central America. It ends up making it, you know, 
these people are just inherently violent and they want to do these things because that's who they are. I look at these animals, you know, like, and then these other people have to flee. And I don't think that there's any real engagement with what it would look like if we didn't continue to like interfere with other countries' politics. So, and then I'm just going to leave it at this, uh, this one last statement is like, for example, um, Bernie Sanders said that we should try to work with, bring together, you know, the leaders in Central America and the leader in Mexico, Obrador, um, and come together and talk about what to do in the region. But like <laughs> the presidents in Latin America, in, in Central America right now, were for the most part either installed by the United States, like what we saw in Honduras, or like far right wing types who became popular because of U.S intentional destabilization of economies, of infrastructure, of all sorts of things, of the societies as a whole. And so it's, and, and in some cases, literally became popular because of corruption and things that the U.S. did to the alternate, like the other candidates, opposition candidates, et cetera. It's a long story, but basically it's crazy to me that we are having this discussion where we have hundreds of thousands of people coming in desperate situations and we're not talking about how to fix it. We're just talking about like, I guess maybe we should give them some toothbrushes and beds but we don't have any real discussion about how to stop um, continuing harm towards these people beyond just when they get to the border. Anyway, sorry for the rant, but it's, it's frustrating. Um, mm. So then I wanted to then switch over and kind of talk about like beyond just some of these issues that we felt were lacking or, or maybe that we'd like to see, you know, discussed in further detail. Um, I'm curious about what you all thought was done particularly well in terms of issues. Is there something that you all felt like, um, you know, that the candidates really enumerated well and made clear, if anything, because I know they were only given like a minute and 30 seconds or whatever to talk about these rather complicated points. Um, but do, I mean, do you feel like there's something, something that's something someone is saying is in depth enough for you to really get a feel for what they're all about. If you were coming to this debate as someone who's never looked at a policy platform or anything on their website or their Twitter handle page or whatever, um, Anoa, what about what are your thoughts on this? I mean, Castro on immigration, particularly the issue of decriminalization of, mar of, of migration. Um, that was, like I said, when he, when I said earlier, when he interrupted RF, um, Robert Francis, <laughs> that was, I mean, now I got a new thing. So that was, I think, you know, whether or not there's some fact checking or oversimplifying that happened, I did have a good, general good understanding of what he was saying and what he's talking about, removing some criminalization and removing the teeth that allows the U.S. government to detain families and separate children in this way. I mean, I think he, he put forth a very clear um, argument, and whereas, you know, fewer like half the stage did with him on the first night, almost everyone, that, that specific, like, he pushed it, so that basically it ended up becoming a question the second night and everyone except for Biden didn't seem like he was sure about whether or not he should raise his hand, raise their hand on the stage. Um, and then also I think, I think Marianne Williamson is very clear on the issue of love and peace and whatever weed she smokes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I called her Glenda the Good Witch only because her voice had those interesting sing-songy, you know, harmonies, but I guess she, she's more like one of those knockoff lifetime movie Joan Baez type mm -hmm. the way she talks kind of or it's people were saying like she has what's called a mid-Atlantic accent which is something I never knew about that's the way people used to talk in old movies 
right. was a specific accent people mm-hmm. were trained to have. I was like, oh, that's an interesting take on it. But anyway, I'm sure she's she's very clear that her issue is love and peace and 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 I see you, girlfriend, in the sunshine when we're all sitting <laughs> together singing. Um, I I also think you know you know Bernie, these these are not. I don't know. I get torn because I know I'm so critical of Bernie Sanders, but not because I don't think that you know his issues or what he purports to do is like right. I think that it's just not being done consistently well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not to say that other people are better or anything. I just am critical because it's like, dude, come on. You're supposed to be the best we got. Show me better. But um, mm-hmm. I do think that when he, you know, he, I think, did a better job of trying to, I think he did a better job of trying to listen to what I perceive as advice given to him ahead of the debate. But I feel like he could have interjected and really, like, led on that stage more commandingly, but I'm pretty sure he's trying to figure out how to navigate the advice he's probably being given on how to make sure he, being on the stage with so many women too, Mm. I'm sure he's probably trying to figure out how to navigate and have a conversation. But I did appreciate when he interjected with Joe Biden about Iraq. And then I thought, even though I don't agree with the framing that uh, you talk about the generational issue with him and Biden, um, is is ageism. I mean, I get why he would say that, but I don't agree with that. But I do feel like when he pivoted to distinguish himself from Biden and Bernie, you know, when he because they're basically the same age, when he uh-huh. distinguishes himself, he's like, no, it doesn't matter about age. It matters if we have someone committed to these principles. So, because his issues tend to be like he tends to do the bigger picture framing thing. I think he did that well in his closing as well, also. Um, but then when he hit Biden on the Iraq war and would use that to distinguish himself in terms of, you know, uh, Yemen, Iran, like, I, I think he did that pretty well as well. Yeah, I was happy that he brought up Yemen because that's that, again, was like another mm-hmm. state and Iran, too. Even the commentators, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, brought up Iran to Biden. Um, and they also started the night by asking Biden about his his speeches to donors, which I, again, this is why I'm kind of like, for people who are saying the, the comment or the, the people who were moderating were harsh on Bernie or harsh on Tulsi, they were asking everyone hard questions. If you're actually paying attention, it's just a matter of like how, how the candidates themselves dealt with those questions that I think made us feel kind of a difference. Um, Richard, what about you? What are your thoughts on things that stood out to you that perhaps were positive or well done or that uh, you would like to see them go into further because they perhaps did a good job during the debate. Well, I, I did quickly just want to mention that I think uh, your, your, what you said on foreign policy was very important and that like I felt in some ways the, the quote that you pulled from Bernie kind of encapsulates a lot of what's wrong with the U.S. centric left uh, when it taught when it thinks about foreign policy in general and then that's reflected in the kind of uh, defensiveness that you see from a lot of his supporters around defending his his foreign policy uh, mm-hmm. in in a lot of uh, uh, ways. Uh, one of the things that I think was done well, or most like the most important thing that I think was said on the stage for, of either night came from did come from Bernie though, and that was when he said, and it kind of just got glossed over, but that essentially we're not going to get any of these ideas or policies that anybody on this stage is talking about, be it, you know, Julian Castro, which I agree with, no, he did display a very good example of, you know, 
the kind of thing that Bernie got grilled for up against uh, Hillary in the last election about, you know, knowing exactly what policy he's talking about and what he expects to change. And he was able to do that even given the very limited time on the debate stage. So that was an impressive display. But essentially, again, that what Bernie said is that we're not going to get any of that stuff if it's not tens of millions of us taking to the streets to demand it because the, the systems in play uh, are uh, overwhelmingly powerful and preventing even the most moderate like moderate and modest reforms whether it be you know making sure the the cops have their cameras on like uh Pete Buttigieg had to deal with or whether it's uh, you know some of the more uh, audacious and um, uh, existential threats like climate change it's like we're not going to deal with any of that unless we demand it because the, the people the other people on that stage and the and the the, the uh, I guess the special interests that they that lobby them aren't going to let that happen unless we we demand it. And so it's unfortunate that I think that kind of got glossed over. But I do think that was one of the most important things that was said and that I think people have to really internalize uh, when we consider any of the candidates on the stage or any of the policies that they're advocating is uh, is there a realistic way to get that uh, make that happen uh, without us doing what we would have to do uh, to get something uh, better or more, uh, let's see here, more ambitious accomplished mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. like, if we have to do the same thing either way, we might as well set our target at the more ambitious thing and then leave this other less ambitious thing perhaps as somewhere to settle. Right. I mean, there, that is a good point. And I think that there's like, this is one of the leftover problems that we saw during the Obama administration was that, for example, many people said that he was great at mobilizing people to get out the vote and to go vote for him and like to put him in office for two terms. But there wasn't enough ground. There wasn't enough of a ground game. Um, this is one of the criticisms that I've heard quite a bit. There wasn't enough of a ground game to maintain that momentum and then help really like push not only push him on issues, but to push people at the local level to vote for more progressive candidates or people that would potentially back up whatever Obama had presented as his goals. Um, there was sort of a that helped Obama get elected. And I wonder, you know, like one of the models that we see in England was that uh, people that supported the Jeremy Corbyn campaign ha came up basically with like, a, I don't know what I would call it, sort of a, a, an equivalent of a pack, but the British version called Momentum, where they were pushing for policies and things like that that went along with um, his plans, but that weren't just about getting him in the position of, you know, prime minister, but more about making sure that on the ground uh, people were advocating for uh, more egalitarian policies and things like that. I wonder, though, if... I mean, maybe maybe it's because it's like the hit, Bernie's stuff is old to me now. And I think also because so many other people are basically parroting what he's been saying. It kind of, for me, felt like Bernie's message has been watered down because it's so widespread at this point. And it's widespread in a way that, as I said, is watered down, like a sort of a cheapened, whitewashed uh, mm -hmm. version of what he's pushing for. But I wonder, you know, how do we as potential voters in 2020 maintain these issues um, in action beyond the election, regardless of who wins. Because I think one of the things that I saw, at least just on a personal level, after Bernie lost the primaries in 2016, I think people continued that fight. But I also think that fight kind of spiraled into things that had nothing to do with issues so much as they did with personality and, and people that they follow and trust and people that they don't follow and don't trust. Um, and I, I wonder, 
like in for both of y'all and feel free to answer this however but like how do you all see this if any momentum still exists how do you see that momentum spreading further and continuing even if bernie is or isn't elected um and furthermore how do you all see the prospect of pushing bernie because i i feel like whenever many of us raise challenges to things that he said or like race criticism even if it's like completely done in good faith there's still a lot of pushback and i'm wondering how do you all think that that like how do you all think that the momentum can continue and also that change can be made to push him even further to the left i know i know it works relentlessly in this arena in general and and on 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 the streets (laughs) so like i'm definitely going to defer to her here Richard and I, it's when we haven't chatted in a while, but I remember one of our one of our probably our last conversations was, and we had to reassure each other that we loved each other. We were still brother and sister because we were getting to a very fierce debate. <laughs> Reunited. <laughs> yes, but uh, I will start with the the last part because I am, and, and this these are things that I've discussed, and I don't mind discussing it this year you know, for the listeners to digest and at least hear my thoughts on it. And it's not easy for me, right? Because, you know, I spent so much time. The reason why I'm even doing the podcast, the reason why I'm doing so much of what I do now started with me. I mean, well, some of it started just because of how I was raised and who my parents are. But, you know, a good, this this current iteration of my adult self started, you know, first I had the, the chemical school in West Virginia getting my kids settled and stuff once we moved, I got involved doing, you know, grassroots digital work around Bernie. And then that just took off. And to advocate for someone and issue so adamantly, so intently, and to get so deeply involved in certain spaces and to have removed myself in some way from those same spaces, it is very weird, but it's like, you know, the emperor has no clothes type of moment for me. And it's not that I think that there's anything wrong per se. I do have a problem with can we actually can we actually hold them accountable? Because there is there there are a couple of different things, right? Like the economic stuff is always you know everyone's like oh it's, it's the greatest it's, it's the best thing out there, but there are still gaps and holes in the way he explains things and the implementation who he trusts to, to bring in. It's not that they're aren't good people like Derek Hamilton is a really good person that he has had like involved in conversations around different things. But I, I, there, there are moments, there are places where things can be explained and done better that are not particularly scripted. Like a lot of folks, I used the Juneteenth video recently as an example. Oh, wow. He's doing this and Juneteenth and reparations. So that was about Juneteenth and the holiday. There is the conversation that he did have about HR 40, but if you notice, Bernie gets a lot of praise and he does well when he's paired with other people who are complimentary or really, you know, providing more of the conversation and then he interjects his part, mm-hmm. right? When it's him and questioners in an unscripted environment that he and his campaign do not control, it's a different story. And that was our experience here in Atlanta. Um, but that doesn't mean that the campaign is bad or wrong or that there aren't really amazing people doing amazing work. I think that you have someone who's very set in his ways, who knows what he knows, that his analysis of particular issues and primarily the intersection of race and economic and class, you know, racial justice, economic justice, I mean, he, he can say the words, he can repeat things back to folks, but does he deeply 
understand or believe he needs to change his framework? I don't think so. And But does he need to? I don't know that he needs to, but then I would like for us to stop pretending that he's something else mm-hmm. is my issue where I kind of get a hang up on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so can we hold him accountable? I think the best way to hold him accountable is to be in spaces of movement, um, you know, that are issue-based focused organizations, organizations that do, do advocacy work that are committed to holding people accountable on issues, not spaces that are committed to growing their political uh, 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 landscape through attachment to his name. And so DSA, for example, I don't see DSA as an honest space that can hold him accountable because I feel like the conflict in, 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 in trying to rapidly grow from proximity to Bernie uh, interferes with the ability of DSA to be an honest uh, uh, accountability partner. Mm-hmm. And that, but that's just me. It doesn't mean DSA is bad. I personally don't deal with my DSA chapter here for that those reasons because there isn't honest accountability happening. And I know this is an issue we're talking about in multiple chapters. Just even looking at the when Afrosoch, you know, had the letter about the issues of Bernie Sanders on racial justice, how he does not comport with the things that DSA as an organization had adopted. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, 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 but we can still push you on the thing. Once you get somebody the endorsement and you agree to throw down, you don't, unless you kind of negotiate that space on the front end, you don't necessarily, like, really leverage that power in the same way. There are so many different interests at work. So, I mean, like, he's a politician. I mean, he's a good politician on the right, and he's right mostly on the issues. He has his moments where he needs to be corrected, but we have to be willing to hold him accountable and correct him, and it doesn't, this whole notion that we have to defend him with our every living breath, no matter what, and anybody who says, it's like, remember when, when we had the thing with the pictures, and like people kept sharing that one picture that clearly wasn't Bernie, like, it clearly wasn't him, like, it doesn't look anything like any of the pictures we have from that same exact month, right? Like, Wait, not which, even like, which like, picture are you talking about? I think the there's one that like, looks like, like Eugene picture. from Walking Dead. Yes. <laughs> chained to a black woman sitting in the brain. They're like, but he's chained to a black woman. It's like, Bernie Sanders is not the only white man to have ever been chained to a black to, to handcuff to a black woman. And, you know, because of the way just it went viral, like it's like some online blog had it had that and they were like, Well, this has all the pictures and it has this one. So I'm like, right. But if you go back and you Google search the image, that's not him. It says what it is. It's a completely different day than he was arrested and everything. But it doesn't look like him at all. But people swarping down and it was Jonathan K. Part trying to turn everyone but it's like people are making mistakes. People are mis- doing misguided things in terms of their advocacy, and we've had discussions that have gone amok, have run amok in the past three years because the campaign, you know, tried to act like the grassroots wasn't a problem. The grassroots is the campaign's, you know, livelihood, you know, fundraising, volunteer-based, you know, bragging rights. But when it comes time to really kind of asserting um, some type of guidance because it is a space that needs a little bit of nurturing and guidance. Um, there's been a reluctance to do that. I mean, part of the problem we're having with some people that we have issues with in terms of the class reductionist stuff and, you know, these people from Australia who talk about things and call stuff racist and don't know what they're talking about is because there was this really large space that was created that was nurtured, encouraged, I should say, but not nerds, nurtured, that was just left to grow unruly without any real clear guidance or help. Right. Like movements 
I mean, otherwise that's just anarchy. And I mean, I'm sure there are anarchists who are very nice people, but um, I, I feel like a little structure and formality. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just want to inter- intersect, uh, intersect, um, interject really quickly. And I'm going to sound like a total Bernie bro, but Jonathan Capehart was wrong. Uh, I think he was wrong. I think we're You're conflating right. some of the pictures. So the what I so this is just my. He was wrong. There was one picture that was wrong that we kept correcting. Right. Um, but yeah. Jonathan Capehart was wrong. Yeah. So there was one where pictures? he's like giving a talk. Yeah. Uh. Yes. Go ahead. Hello. I know it. Did we lose him? I'm here. Okay. Go ahead. What were you saying? Well, I was saying, I was saying yes. You're, I was, no, I was just saying yes. I was, oh, okay. I was just saying yes. Yeah, like yes, you're right. Go ahead. Um, yeah, but I think that there has been. I would agree insofar as sometimes the pushback from his supporters is like wilder than the, than the pushback from the campaign about things that sometimes are like innocuous or not that serious, and it just makes people look a little bit. Um, like they're going overboard. And that's why I was saying, like, sometimes it seems like we lose the issues um, in some of this, like, fandom, right? Um, I think some people have turned it less into a matter of, like, focusing on issues, which is what I think Bernie would want, um, and more into an issue of, like, focusing on Bernie himself. Um, and I think that, that that can be a little bit dangerous and perhaps will replicate the problem that we saw with the Clinton campaign and will replicate the problems that we subsequently saw during Obama's administration. Um, Richard, throwing it over mm. to you now. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, yeah, I think that, that there's, uh, it all raises some excellent points and addresses a lot of the issues that I think come up quite frequently. And I think one kind of aspect that was being touched on there was uh, there's Bernie himself as an individual doesn't like being basically lumped in with Joe Biden on a lot of things, be it, you know, policy in general or specifically on policy surrounding race. Like he recognizes generationally they come from the same place, but that they were in very different places during those during those times. You know, Bernie being, you know, participating in demonstrations and Biden doing (laughs) working and communicating with segregationists and so on and so forth. So you have kind of different. backgrounds to them and i think you see uh bernie react in similar ways to what we saw joe biden when kamala confronted him about his his history in that some of that white fragility leaks out in that like you know rather than recognize oh you know i know i've done a lot but at at my identity relegates me to a certain uh, uh position in this structure in the system and Beyond that, you know, my political position also assigns me a certain responsibility, as is the case with the, the going back to the crime bill. Like Bernie has his explanation. There's an explanation there. And he he made his case at the time, but he still is connected in that he does have to take responsibility for signing on to it and for what that matters and that he chose that battle as he did. And and I think he has to defend it in, in that way. And uh, I think what we also see is that that also is both reflected and then amplified among Bernie supporters in that when Bernie is attacked, uh, they're like, well, I didn't even chain myself to any black woman. So they're calling me extra racist if they're calling Bernie racist. (laughs) And so like, that's kind of how, and so you get a reaction that, that essentially uh, it's, it's not 
that distinguishable from it when Joe Biden gets, you know, accused mm -hmm. of saying or doing something racist in that there's a feeling that there's an inoculation or that their politics and in some cases uh, people's identities prevents them from uh, being able to hold on to or uh, have these problematic positions. And that's not how it works. It's like, it may reduce the likelihood that you'll keep them or maintain them when they're confronted or that you'll establish them in the first place and so several other factors, but it doesn't mean that you're automatically immune from adopting or uh, using those types of uh, ideas or assigning or uh, attaching yourself to those types of policies. And right. so, to kind of tie that into what we talked about before with the the crime bill and Kamala confronting him and all that is like the context, the historical context of the crime bill comes uh, after Rodney King. Like Rodney King took place in 1991 and the LA riots in 92 when the cops got let off. So it's not so so the crime bill wasn't just in the context of heightened crime, which is often how it's portrayed uh, and defended by people that advocate or defend Biden and so on and so forth. It was also in the context of a national outcry over police brutality uh, mm. basically being answered with uh, the crime bill, which is kind of uh, was the 90s versions of Blue Lives Matter. And so like, and being attached to that for uh, being an architect of it in Biden's case or being attached to it in Bernie's case is something that has to be reconciled, has to be dealt with, or being, uh, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, made that went through with what it prescribed in Kamala Harris's case. All of those things are things we have to reconcile. And uh, just as it doesn't do any good for Kamala Harris supporters to just try and pretend like they don't have to reconcile, it doesn't do any good for Bernie supporters to do the same. It's like, uh, and whether it's the crime bill or whether it's a particular position or uh, phrase or action that he takes related to race or immigration or uh, foreign policy, we have to be critical. And if, he is going to be the best of a bad bunch and, and there's some sort of idea of holding him accountable. We, we, we have to do that the entire time and not just when it's politically convenient because it's never going to be politically convenient as we've discovered and learned from a lot of the democratic party. Yeah, definitely. It is. It absolutely isn't ever politically convenient uh, for sure. And I think that there, again, this sort of becomes a challenge uh, in terms of mobilization, because I think on the one hand, we can mobilize around certain issues, but then if we feel like no candidate fully represents, the like properly represents and defends those issues, it can be difficult. It's sort of like a chicken or the egg situation because on the mm -hmm. one hand, you want to put pressure on them. You want it to be, you want them to be uncomfortable enough to the point where they say, okay, you're right. You know, they concede and change. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like you also don't want to criticize too much because you feel like you're aiding their competitors or aiding Trump or whomever. Um, so it can be kind of a challenge in that way as well. One thing that I think that, I mean, this didn't get brought up at all uh, during the either of the debates, but um, just thinking once again about foreign policy on the matter of uh, the Israel-Palestine situation, mm -hmm. you know, when I was watching Elizabeth Warren in her, in her absolute silence during a discussion of foreign policy, I said, maybe it's better that she's not weighing in here. <laughs> you know, like it's better mm. for her sake. Uh, it's better for her voters, perhaps, uh, that she's not saying anything about foreign policy here, because as you all have may have seen um, online, she she talked about climate change, but like as it related to the military industrial complex and like soldiers being subjected to like poor weather conditions and thus endangering them. But of course, not talking at all about like how 
climate change affects like people. I'm laughing because it's just kind of absurd, but how it affects right. people around the world far worse. And like our concern can't just be soldiers, but like literally soldiers going to these places to kill people. Like it's not about it's not like they're, you know, going for to, to aid them like in reconstructing their countries or something. I mean, they're going there to to murder them. So the point is like absurd. Um, but then also I think, you know, I just keep seeing article after article about Warren's stance on on Israel. Um, and she basically, like for the most part, kind of echoes what we saw with Hillary Clinton, at least insofar as she defends uh, the military budget and she defends the continued aid, aid to, to Israel, despite what keeps has always come out but it continues to come out about atrocities being committed um, against palestinians and just the occupation of their land as a whole i i wondered though you know i said to myself like we how can we have a full conversation about the implementation and sustaining of policies about the u.s in the world if we continue to have the cia the nsa and all of these other institutions that implement and like um, and also just like private military industrial complex corporations and things like that. It, it's all, it's a lot for me to wrap my head around in terms of how we fix this problem. And this is one of the reasons why I, it was hard for me to watch the debates because I think there's a lot of pressure coming from people from around the world saying, you know, obviously we need, the U S needs to stay out of other countries and Americans need to play a bigger role in saying the U S's position abroad and and domestically to be honest towards native americans towards african americans towards immigrants of any race um at least non-white immigrants right the, that we need to have we need to play a bigger role in putting pressure on people and making change but i'm like i don't know what that looks like i mean i think you all outlined some of the things we can do as it relates to domestic policy but i have no idea how to enact change and i'm just admitting defeat here it's like i don't know how to enact change when it comes to foreign policy, which does affect domestic stuff, precisely because like, it's completely out of our hands. Like, do y'all have any thoughts on this? Like, what do we do with things that, that are just, I mean, cause we can vote however we want. We can, we can push for more progressive uh, foreign policy. We can push for this, we can push for that. But at the end of the day, it just feels like everything is run by these organizations and institutions that have no government oversight. I don't know. Am I being am I being too defeatist here? Like, if I, I'd like to say no, but from my perspective, the best option that I have uh, that I have going in my mind is uh, like a, a Vietnam era style kind of protest with uh, that level of both engagement and then just a kind of outright disengagement from systems of oppression in general. So, like uh, we had but- that during the Iraq War, and. Well, yeah, I mean, it'd have to be, like, a, a, like large and systemic and to the point where, like, I mean, it's hard to say because we don't have a draft, so, like, but it would mm-hmm. have to have something, like, comparable to the, to the, to the effect that not, like, to draft dodging and such and so forth had towards the war effort in, in general. But then the problem is, is, like, well, what, what happened to all those brave revolutionaries? And, oh, they were all arrested, killed, or bought off. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, that's the scary part. That's, that's, I think, yeah, I don't know. It's something that's just always on my mind. So sorry if it felt like a bit of a non sequitur, but I think if we're talking about movement building, that's one area we should be doing more of it, but I don't know how successful it is Um, because it's definitely, these, these issues are connected to our domestic policy. I mean, we always manage to come up with money 
to go kill people abroad, but we can't seem to come up with money to pay for college mm-hmm. or pay for healthcare or anything. And I know this is like now a common refrain, but it's it's really just absurd that like people keep saying it over and over and no one's no one on that stage was connecting the dots last night. Um, or, or on Wednesday. I mean, even like Tulsi Gabbard could have been, I, I'm not a fan of hers, but she could have been one person to say it and she didn't even say it. So I'm like, okay. So then my question also going from that is like two issues that I felt were also missing from the discussion that I know both of you all have commented on in other spaces, but um, the only person to really bring up abortion rights, uh, reproductive rights in both for both nights was Julian Castro on the first night and then Kirsten Gillibrand on the second night in a, in a sort of, both were sort of like good intentions, but weird execution. <laughs> on a, mm-hmm. on a, um, mm-hmm. So I'd love to get, especially Noah, your comments on this, because I know you've written about abortion rights and reproductive rights and things like that. Um, but then also the issue of college. And I, I'm, I felt like that discussion about free college or debt-free college was really muddled on both nights. And no one, in my opinion, gave like, a clear enough answer about, or they didn't really even discuss education, like the, the common, the, the moderators, excuse me, moderators didn't bring up education that much. So if you all could talk about those issues as well, and like where you see these things going forward and how they connect back to, to the other issues we had also been talking about. Yeah. Um, it was like speed dating, right? Like, it was like <laughs> speed dating for, for, for debates, but which is really bad. Although I do like Richard's earlier suggestion about whether or not we would have a like game show type of thing. Like I'm thinking like a couple different rounds, you know, like a right. Price is Right type of thing. Like hey. that could be kind of hot. <laughs> and then we just eliminate them on the spot. I think that was just like, you're out. They start, they do multiple rounds of three. Yeah. <laughs> and only uh, three people get to the end to, to, to do the wheel, right? Or something like that. Like, yeah. or, or, or however it works. I don't, I haven't watched Friends Brain so long. But to your question, um, I think that uh, I'll start with the, the college ones. So to be around, to be somewhere in between the ages of Buttigieg, I think I'm like a year or two older than him, and then I think he's 36 or 37, so I'm around his age. I'm a little older than him, and I'm a little younger than Swalwell, I think, or about the same age. So anyway, so I'm somewhere around that. And so listening to both of them on the stage, let's say, talk about their six-figure debt, right? And, like, the, the push between two of them, but I never really got clarity on what Swalwell's actual plan was because or position was, I just knew he was disagreeing with Buttigieg, but I don't even know what point he was disagreeing with about, right? But what to have that conversation focused, and, and for Pete to be allowed to steer the conversation, well, I'm the, I'm the millennial, I'm the youngest person on the stage, so I think I should answer this. You have a viewpoint, my dude, that is so out of, it does not comport to what people our age and younger are talking about. Like I sat down with my fr- I sat down with my daughter. My daughter just graduated from high school. My friend's daughter is going to her senior. So like within 24 hours, I had two conversations with, and they don't know each other. But I had two con- almost identical conversations with these two young women who don't even know each other, right? But like the issues they were talking about were climate change was number one, climate crisis, climate change, whether or not we'll even have whatever we'll have in 20 years, that was number one, and then a college affordability was number two, followed by, like, the abortion bans and health care, which were not necessarily right behind college affordability, but since they're at that age, that's what they were thinking about, both specifically. Mayla does, my daughter does worry about what happens when she's 26, mm-hmm. and she can't be on my insurance or her dad. Well, at this point, I don't have it, but her dad's insurance, right? 
what happens if there isn't something there for her and she doesn't have a job that she can go into? And I'm like, okay, that's like eight years away. Don't freak out too much about it. But this is something she's starting to think about because she's becoming a quote-unquote adult soon, right, or is on her way, right? So I was really just, I was really, really bothered by that whole because we did just have some really great discussion based on the plans that came out. You, know, you had Bernie Sanders' plan, like 100 academics just signed on to the plan that he has with Pramila Jayapal and, and, and Ilhan, like 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 all these people just, just signed on to it. And then, you know, not too long before that, you have, you know, Warren has her plan, but then she has legislation with Clyburn, which aren't exactly the same. Her plan goes a little bit further, but doesn't go as far as Sanders does. But then the, the um, legislation, I think, is capped at $50,000. And, um, you know, obviously it would be dope. It's, it's very interesting to me, the people who are arguing against canceling debt because of the personal choices they made or the personal choices they don't agree with other people making. And I was just like, well, I don't, you know, I don't agree with the personal choices that the various, you know, hedge fund people and financiers made that crashed the damn economy. But guess what? They still got bailed out, right? Like, I don't know if that should matter. Um, But I do think the other, not just in a debate, but I think nationally in terms of conversation, debt forgiveness has to be a part of a larger conversation in terms of economic measures. And my concern is that there might be, like, one or two different things. Because, I mean, we see this in New York with the Excelsior, right? Mm -hmm. Debt-free college, the Excelsior is actually riddled with a lot of different issues, which were raised by, like, CUNY organizers and other folks um, when it was going through, when Poland was trying to push it through. However, you know, there are other other issues that go along in terms of school, and I'm glad to see the proposal plans that have come out are starting to address issues around cost of living as a whole, which takes up a larger portion of what students are, are dealing with instead of just tuition. Um, but I was, but I continue to be really bothered by the fact that Pete, who is like conservative for, for younger voter standards, gets, or he's, you know, he's like, he's, he's, he's leaning, he's like moderate conservative leaning on a lot of issues. And I'm annoyed that he continues to be able to steer himself into conversations because he's young. It's not. It's the same thing we talk about with representation, right? It's again a representation plus the issue. It's mm-hmm. not just enough that you're representation. You know, Hitler Youth were young too. So, and now I'm not calling Pete Hitler or Hitler Youth. <laughs> I'm just saying that people can have, you know, particular opinions and stuff. I mean, Charlie Kirk and them aren't that old, right? But they have the CJ. Uh, what's his name? The little, the little black Republican boy. He's a teenager. So age does not mean that you're going to be right on the issues and having him steer the conversation that flies in the face of the conversation that his peers, myself and others younger than us are having is just, which is very problematic. But I did appreciate which I interpreted as well. We'll put pushing back the right way, but I don't really know because I don't know much about what his plan was. That didn't come across because that, 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 that was not very good. And the other thing was I wasn't sure that Pete and his husband have six figure debt combined or individually, because he keeps saying that. It's a very different thing if you and your spouse combined have a six-figure debt that you're dealing with and what that six-figure number looks like, right? But I, myself, alone have a six-figure debt. I haven't hit two and I didn't hit two hundred thousand dollars thankfully, but I, by myself, have a six-figure. Like, I just figure I'm going to be paying for my student loans when I have grandchildren. So, you know what I'm saying? So, like, um, my daughter, having seen my student loan payment, is terrified of, of student loans, will not take them, 
like, I was like, well, you might, we might need to think about it for study abroad, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I don't know. She's like, I don't know if we're doing that. Like, I She's like, I don't know. We're going to have to figure that out. I might have to just work, pick up some hours someplace and work safe for study abroad. She's like, I don't know if we're doing that at all. And I was like, well, it's just a little bit. She, she, no. Like, Nayla sees my payment. But it's so, so I was really disappointed about that. And then going to the abortion, I think you brought up a really good point about the abortion. You know, Gillibrand was really trying to get in there. And one thing I didn't think about, and I think you touched on this a little bit before, Wendy, but, like, you know, the Blasio annoyed the hell out of me. There are a lot of people who say he did well. He really annoyed me. I found him obnoxious. I don't Same. think he was just a, a New Yorker being loud and interrupting. I just yeah. felt that he was he was super trying to position himself and being something and inserting himself. And it's like, you don't even have a, a leg to stand on, dude. But conversely, people were critical of Gillibrand She's also a New Yorker. She literally did the same exact thing. Like by the, there was mm-hmm. one standard for for De Blasio. When people were saying they were they were like annoyed with the way she kept interrupting. I'm like, at least she was like like she did the same exact thing. I don't really care for her that much, but I do find it problematic the way she's being you know outshone by some of these you know media vocal folks like Biden. Like I wrote about in my piece about Biden's launch, he basically copied her video. Um, he basically copied her launch video. Like he has a larger profile and name, so he got a bunch of clicks for it. But she did try to talk about it and, and insist. What was funny, the night before, was it Hicken? No, not Hicken Luther, was it Delaney? Well, I can't remember which one of them, because they're all so random, from the first night, said that no one had did more to fight for women's rights or something like that than him. And mm-hmm. then, like, people were like, that is such a weird thing to say on the stage with a bunch of women. Right. And... And Biden didn't go there, but I was annoyed. Even though the language about the Hyde Amendment and stuff came out, it was very disjointed and disconnected. And that would have been another another way to really tie Biden to to bad policy because there's so much bad policy that's being danced around. And, I mean, these are American politicians, right? They all have some bad policy they've supported and dealt with. However, there's gradations to the spectrum, and Biden is way further down the spectrum than everyone else. Um and and so the thing with Julian, like the one big feedback I heard with Bishop was, and he acknowledged it, which I thought was really good. Though he acknowledged the criticism that he had, but I hope he actually acts on the response that people have had. That he needs to have someone, at least someone trans of color, on his staff mm-hmm. because of the way he he so he's trying to do the gender inclusive language, and I think he's the only one that's doing this, the gender inclusive language around abortion. He's trying. But he, he didn't do a good job at it, right? Right. And I didn't catch it because I was just like, I, I heard the words reproductive justice, but then I heard, you know, trans, and I was like, oh, wow, that's great. So I wasn't even catching it. So I do appreciate the fact that people took the time to point out that that was not executed. It was like, you know, intentions, but impact. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so I mean, that was, and particularly the, the, what, what, we're, what we're facing right now with the, the massive onslaught. And the other thing I'll say, too, was problematic was the phrasing of some questions. I think there was a question one of the nights about, um, well, what are some things that could be considered socialists that are bad by the Republicans? It doesn't matter what anyone does who's a Democrat. The Republicans are going to say it's socialist. So that's exactly. just a question to ask anyway. And then there was something else that was just like the framing of it was like, why are you framing this question this way? This doesn't give us anything. But it gives them clicks and views. And that's the problem. And I think, too, that it kind of, in some ways, in their defense, which I reluctantly present, um, but I think that 
it's also good preparation for what they would face in a Republican debate or not a Republican debate, but like a debate with Donald Trump, a looser debate, um, the general debate. And then also uh, in the press in general. Right. I think that that basically what I'm trying to say is at this point, you should be ready for that. Right. If you are running for president, you should be ready for whatever they're going to throw at you. And there's that's why I keep saying there's no more room to be like, oh, that was a mean question. Like, yeah, you're running for freaking president. You're going to get a lot of mean questions. This is normal. Like, you're going to have to deal with a lot more than just Rachel Maddow and Chuck Todd being idiots on the stage. You're going to deal with questions and issues that are much graver than this that you have to know how to answer properly and address. And I just think that, you know, at this point, the bar is really low, but we... I think we and we have load, lowered expectations and I think we come up with excuses for people when at then this is why I was so disappointed because I was like everyone on that stage if you're running for president you should be prepared and better able to answer some of the questions um and I didn't feel like there were always adequate and in-depth uh answers anyway uh Richard go ahead uh, I was just going to add that, like, the, one of those things that any of the debates, Republican or Democrat, always remind me of is, or, like, make me question, is, like, really, this is the best we can come up with in this country? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I know people that, like, I bumped into on the side of the road more than one time, and I would be like, I, I think they could do better at just fielding these questions, <laughs> let alone actually, like, the tasks of running the country. Like, mm-hmm. And so, like, it, it is kind of surprising that this is the cream so to speak that rises to the top and uh, i think it speaks as an indictment to the system in general uh just as far as if there's anything else that i really wanted to capture in there um uh i guess just that beyond my disappointment in in our selection is just uh that i don't even with the issues that we laid and the the critical importance that they have i feel like maybe hopefully in future debates but uh, who knows that we'll ha- we'll get all the way through the whole entire election without actually having heard substantive solutions for the existential problems that we face and that it, we can't we won't even be able to hold anybody accountable because they won't have have actually tied themselves to anything uh, substantial enough to make the kind of impact that we need. And one of the examples that comes to my mind is uh, several candidates, uh, Joe Biden comes to mind, especially had some issues with the hand raising questions. But uh, uh, Kamala Harris also just had the uh, issue where she, you know, apparently misunderstood the question or the question wasn't clearly worded in it's that about health care. And this is the second time that she's kind of walked back uh, a position on health care. So there's uh, beyond the uh, the kind of uh, somewhat lackluster policy proposals from a lot of the candidates and even the the better ones, there's also a a question of, can I believe any of these people about what they're saying or are they just saying it because they know I want to hear it? Because Mm -hmm. a lot of these same exact people spent the most, like the 2016 election, uh, taking like doing the opposite of essentially what they're doing now, which is mimicking Bernie. Instead, they were pointing out how what Bernie was saying was, uh, ridiculous to hear from a presidential candidate. And then as soon as they became a presidential candidate, they started repeating it with some minor modifications or uh, just, you know, emptily with just the rhetoric without actually substantively believing in it. Right. I think too, there was a lot of, there was like a really craving use of identity politics throughout both, um, both talks. And when I say identity politics, in this case, I'm saying in the way that's like, 
you know, a distortion of its original intent. Um, but people using their personal identity as a way or like, like concocted fictive personal identity or borrowed identities in some cases, like Beta O'Rourke, uh, to sort of present themselves as an advocate or ally to a specific community. And I just think about, you know, um, Beto, obviously, like with the Spanish, although, I mean, given it was for Telemundo and it's in Miami and so it makes sense. But sometimes he would like answer in Spanish, but it didn't have anything to do with the question. He was just like, ah, yo voy a hablar español. I'm going to speak Spanish now, like for no reason. Um, and then wouldn't answer that. Like if you can understand Spanish, you're like, yo, you're not you're not actually answering the question. Um, so this is not helpful. But then I think also like uh, Cory Booker constantly reminding everyone how he lives in a poor neighborhood, but like he chooses to live in that neighborhood. That's what it like blows my mind. Like, uh, and also Bill de Blasio talking about his black son, whom for anyone who like, I used to live in New York and people who follow New York politics know he loves to bring up his black son and his black wife and his black daughter whenever he's being called on the like doing terrible things to the black community in New York and especially poor black communities in New York, um, ignoring matters of police brutality, siding with the police in cases of police brutality, you know, um, gentrifying neighborhoods and siding with the real estate industry and all of that. Um, but then he's always quick to bring up like, but my black son. And so it's just very frustrating to kind of see how even at this stage, this late in the game, insofar as like late in the discussion about use and misuse of, of personal um, affect and identity to appeal to certain people to do it in such a blatant and like messed up way that had nothing they weren't even connecting back to the issues it was just like here's my chip um that I can use against this other player but they weren't necessarily it wasn't like Cory Booker having lived chosen to live in a poor neighborhood in Newark has meant that he's actually done anything to help poor people in Newark it's just for him to be able to say something so I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to, I mean, I shouldn't say looking forward to, I, I'm looking forward to their addressing more issues with greater depth. I hope that some people drop out between now and the next election, which will give them more time. Uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I don't know. Any any final thoughts maybe um, about this, this set of debates or upcoming debates? Um, any final thoughts for us to close out on as we as we wrap up? I just quickly wanted to tie together two of your points. The one earlier about essentially how these debates and uh, in their presentation, if you're uh, unengaged or less informed voter, uh, how the rhetoric and then the ID politics that you mentioned and like how Booker talking about living in a poor neighborhood and all those different things. Like if you're not more familiar with the backstory of these particular individuals, as a lot of the country isn't and probably still won't be after this, that though you would just accept that that's uh, an honest presentation of that information and not the actual context of what it means mm -hmm. relative to, to their actual situations. But go ahead and know. That's a really good point. Um, I I was just, I'm thankful, so thankful that he stopped talking about T-Bone and his PhD from the streets. Uh, <laughs> that is a really good point. Um, I, I just think just, there's a lot of organizing that needs to be done, right? These these debates can be good for sound bites. They can be good for clips and, 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 and hopefully knock some people out. I mean, I'm totally down for people running for office. You know, I don't believe in coronations and things of that nature. But there are too many people in this race for us to have a real meaningful dialogue on any of these issues. And mm -hmm. like like you were saying, Richard, if people don't take the time, I mean, prime examples of TBI and Andrew Gang, if people don't take the time 
to actually understand not that it's a problem that there's a conversation people are talking about UBI, but then that's being attributed to someone who's not presenting something in a way that's actually beneficial the way we need to discuss. And who is leading discussions and how they're leading discussions actually really does matter. So there really does need to be a lot of organizing um, happening in terms of moving people into action. I know not everyone sees the electoral stuff as their role, and that is fine too, but figuring out what does advocacy around issues and at least doing issue-based organizing and helping people become more informed about opportunities to lobby. Just in um, the Houston uh, the Houston School District last night, uh, there just was a massive red for ed action. Didn't get a lot of national news, but they moved the minimum wage for uh, support staff up to $14. They stopped short of the 15, but they moved it up to $14. And that was like a big deal um, yesterday from, from when I was grappling. And so there are things like that that are happening that even though it's not this hyper high level politics like the presidential election cycle, really does have a direct, meaningful, immediate impact for the people in your community that are around you. Um, and so there are opportunities. I mean, state legislative cycles are weird because a lot of state legislatures are, are part-time, so session might not be happening. But still kind of just seeing what's going on right now today, uh, Alabama, SCOTUS refused to hear the Alabama abortion ban uh, suit. Um, and so in Georgia, abortion ban uh, lawsuit was filed by uh, Reproductive Justice or Sister Song is the name, is the leading plaintiff in that lawsuit. So there's a lot that's happened. There's a lot of activism and organizing for us to throw down on. I think with Wendy and, and, and both Wendy and Richard touched on about, um, you know, what it looks like to have a massive anti-war movement. I mean, like, you know, answer, code pink, there is that. But I don't think that we as black people in this country have really, you know, had a serious organizing effort in terms of the anti-war movement on a larger scale. Not to say that there have been black people who are peace activists and anti-war, but I don't know that we've had that real deep organizing on a larger scale. Why? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people from that time period, you know, were mixed in various movements and we know what has happened and decimated leadership and ranks and education and understanding of certain things. So we do have a lot in front of us. Um, so with these debates, I think we really do want to see, like, it get pared down to a, a grouping of people who will have a certain conversation. There's a lot of organizing. If you're a writer, you know, do some writing. Make sure you're actually vetting what you're writing properly. Even if you're critiquing people, at least do it from an honest place, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to watch any more of these debates until there's fewer people. But I'm sure I will for the sake of being able to do the this, this, uh, strategic analysis report back. But thank you both for having me along for this conversation today. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks right. for joining us. Um, yep. I'd, also just, oh, sorry. I'd also just add to that um, the issue with the bill that was just passed uh, in the House, the bills, plural, House and Senate about immigration that were just awful, that provided more funding to uh, Border Patrol, if I'm not mistaken, and some just like why are we doing this to the point where people in the house were like this bill is garbage we shouldn't sign it and it was pushed by pelosi anyway um and there was also the big uh supreme court case on gerrymandering that sided uh with the republicans uh basically to allow gerrymandering in all of its forms everywhere so we're going to be in for a real wild ride uh come 2022 and also for local elections as well um things to keep our eyes on uh in the coming 
future. Uh, but yeah, thank you both. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Anoa, of course, for being our special guest. Um, for anyone who's interested in continuing to follow the Left Pocket Project, you can check us out on Twitter, and that's at LeftPOC, or on any social media as at LeftPOC. Um, you can also follow us and support us uh, by making a donation for, of course, all the content that is always free. But never- nevertheless, we actually put your money to good use and um, would love to get some more donations and appreciate the ones that we have. Uh, but you could go to patreon.com slash leftpoc. Um, and of course, you can find the Left Pocket Project podcast on any place where you can find uh, podcasts. So iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you all so much again for joining us. Have a great weekend. And uh, until next time. Bye.